This is hell. Whistling by the graveyard since 1996, this is hell. And for those of you who aren't sure exactly what that phrase means, whistling by the graveyard, it refers to when you talk or act as if you are relaxed and confident, when in reality you are filled with anxiety and fear. Which is what our guest suggests, or guest today suggests, is happening right now when it comes to not only those involved in January 6th, but the decades of extremist movement, militia movement building that preceded the attack on the U.S. Capitol. While we all may wish that violent and potentially deadly movement to disappear, it's not, and hoping it will is not a great strategy if you want to rein in such extremism. Of course, not all militant groups are violent and deadly. Despite being like-minded, they vary greatly from one group to another. What they do generally share in common is a collective belief in the national mythos of the United States, as our guest today observed. They believe in a nostalgic past, a past that never existed, as many of our guests on our show have been arguing since we started airing our show way back in the late 20th century. In studying and researching militias, we can have a better understanding of how to avoid a potential threat to the public. What has changed is not that the current militias are any more or less fervent politically than in the past, but that they have become more willing to publicly espouse their hate-filled views. For far too long, academic research avoided any analysis of militias, despite their potential for danger to the public. Mix in a settler mentality, far-right masculinity, Christian ideology, and conspiracy theories, and put all that in a rural setting and the whole thing just scares the hell out of me. Since January 6th, however, those groups have faced a lot of blowback, including being deplatformed from social media. But does that undermine their movement, or does it simply hide it from public view, even leading to it possibly becoming more extreme? We b will be trying to figure all that out, and much, much more, when we speak with someone who was raised in an environment many militia members were raised in, including homeschooling and the prioritization of guns within their family. And that someone is returning to This Is Hell. Sociologist Amy Cooter is author of Nostalgia, Nationalism, and the U.S. Militia Movement. Amy is the Director of Research, Academic Development, and Innovation at Middlebury University's Center on Terrorism, Extremism, and Counterterrorism. Prior to joining Middlebury, Professor Cooter was a senior lecturer in sociology at Vanderbilt University. She's an expert on U.S. domestic militias and related nostalgic groups that are commonly grouped under the terms right-wing or patriot groups and has been studying them for 15 years. Amy does not rely solely on online materials or media reports of these groups, but she also observes, observes group members in ethnography and asks them directly about their motives and perceptions through interviews and surveys. She consults with journalists, law enforcement, other academics around the world, and has served as an expert consultant on federal hate crime and domestic terrorism trials and with multiple committees of the U.S. Congress. She was on the show back in 2022, nearly a year to the date of the events of January 6, 2021. At the time, she was on to discuss her Scientific American article, Citizen Militias in the U.S. are moving toward more violent extremism. In some members, a longing for simpler times is giving rise to deadly activities. You can follow Amy on Twitter, at Amy Cooter. Find out more about Amy at her website, amycooter.com. Producing is Chris Coolfan. Chris, anything new by you? Got any plans for the weekend? Mm. Uh, 
Basically, I've been focusing hard on Bring Chicago Home right now, yeah. and also Graciela Guzman's Illinois State Senate campaign. And uh, Bring Chicago Home had some pretty good experiences. It's nice to, like, the conflict here basically is, okay, I like that that 1% tax, of course, in case you didn't know, Bring Chicago Home is is basically, um, uh, let's just say if somebody buys property for over a million dollars, they get added or restructure 1% tax that goes for building housing or rehabbing housing for the homeless. Right. And so the common question some people is, oh, that's great. Or the comment would be, well, if it's us, if it's, you know, we get patriotic. It has to be the American homeless, not the foreigners that come here that are trying to mooch. You're kidding. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. That. And and the thing is just like, technically, we bring Chicago home, it, it, it how do I say this? It, uh, the migrant issue is a federal issue, so that that is kind of separate. But at the same time, when I try to, there's some like people I've opened up to, like climate chaos, uh, U- U.S. sanctions of Venezuela, and why they come here. You know, right. I was able to open some minds and kind of teach people that, which was great. I'm proud of that. But the other part is when you get to some, you get some of the people going. Well, you know what? I don't care about sanctioning any of that. I just don't want those migrants here. To me, that's the equivalent of saying, you know what? I have high blood pressure, and I, but I just wanted the high blood pressure gone. So please give me that triple bacon cheeseburger and let, let me be. You know, it's, it's that logical. So It doesn't make sense. And uh, uh, people are really, like the big complaint I've seen in Chicago media uh, by people who are opposed to it is it's an increase in tax. And just the fact that they say it's an, a tax increase, then people don't want anything to do with it. And and it's only a 1% tax increase, and it's only on people who buy a home for over a million dollars. And you put that this possibility together with the way that Mary Johnson wants to uh, reclaim the TIF money, if you will, and use that in order to put that towards uh, affordable housing. That'd be billions of dollars in affordable housing money. You put these two things together, and Chicago could become a really great city when it comes to welcoming not only immigrants, but refugees from all over the world. And as I have lived in many gateway neighborhoods here in Chicago, whether it was uptown or New Chinatown or up here in West Ridge, immigrants and refugees are really really good for the local economy they and then as we've you know we're talking about just yesterday on the show doesn't increase crime anywhere there's actually statistics that say that u.s citizens cause a lot more crime than refugees actually it's less than a percent from my understanding and but. and immigrants as well and the study that i saw was the last time that there was any evidence to suggest that immigrants were causing crime was in 1880 so i don't think that was that recently so thanks to everybody, by the way, who joined, uh, who voted for us in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 poll, which came out yesterday. The winners have been announced, and This Is Hell was named first runner-up in the best podcast category. So thanks to everyone who voted for us. I'd tell you and who was the winner and who congratulated and, and congratulate whatever the best podcast is in Chicago. But somebody just texted me... Uh, just an image of the, what they saw online and what was cut off was the winner's name and I didn't have time to check this morning so I apologize but anyway thanks to everybody who voted for us as first run uh, for as best podcast best Chicago podcast really appreciate it we got first runner-up and uh, thanks a lot Chris please remind us what is this week's question from hell and has anyone uh, we and we don't have any responses on Twitter so just tell us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience this week's question from hell is what are you bringing to that this is hell bake sale 
I am seriously considering having a bake sale at the next anniversary party now, just because of the answers we've gotten. So, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Elle, they win their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still leave your answer at our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. You can still leave it at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can still tweet it at us at thisishellradio. You can leave your answer in our Discord community or if you are a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. And we will be announcing this week's winner following our conversation with Amy on Malicious. Coming up, an in-depth look at Malicious beyond the armed groups playing soldier at the U.S.-Mexico border, who we discussed yesterday. Chris will have our Discord community's answers to this week's question from hell, as well as all the rest of our answers to uh, this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on uh, Friday's bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. And uh, Chris will tell us who our confirmed guests are for next week's show. And unbelievably, I know, you're not going to believe this. That's why I said it's unbelievable. We have all three guests for next week already confirmed. Live from the United States, where our past has far too much influence on our present, and that past is more about a nostalgic fantasy than historic reality. This is Hell, returning to This is Hell to help us have a better understanding of exactly what the militia movement is. Sociologist Amy Cooter is author of Nostalgia, Nationalism, and the Militia Movement. Amy, welcome back to This is Hell. Thanks so much for having me again. Thank you so much for being back on. You can follow Amy on Twitter at Amy Cooter, and you can find out more about Amy at her website, amycooter.com. So I had, I've got way too many questions for you, like 60. So, uh, but I was sitting here right before the show, and all of a sudden I was thinking about what our listeners might be concerned about the most in the very near future. What impact do you think the presidential elections outcome will have on the militia movement. I mean, you point out in your book over and over again that the militia movement existed far be- long before Trump ever took office. So would a Trump victory embolden the movement and a loss further radicalize militias, or would the movement decrease in size and influence out of mere frustration? You know, it's, it's always the, the case that I wish I had a crystal ball to know exactly what we should predict from these groups. As you mentioned in the intro, there's a lot of variation and therefore a lot of uncertainty. But given how they have responded in recent years to Trump and other candidates, I expect that they would once more feel legitimized by a lot of the concerns that he puts forth as both real and pressing that they would grow in size, that they and related groups would take even more of a central focus should he win. If he loses, it's a little less clear to me. I think that some some groups might be emboldened. Um, some might be really worried about another stolen election, whereas others might continue to, to remain a little more quiet. That's overall what we're seeing right now, as many of these groups kind of wait to see how some of Trump's legal cases and the actual GOP race continues to play out. But it's going to continue to exist either way. If Trump is elected or not, it is still going to exist because it existed before Trump and it's going to exist after him. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. It would be a mistake to assume that it would ever go completely away, I think, given how American culture is so entrenched in what militia groups are. 
So you write that there has been a uh, complementary tendency in academic circles to downplay the study of militias and similar groups, and that tendency has historically also existed in law enforcement circles, even when militia plots have been foiled by arrests. We've collected, collectively tended to think about them as social flukes rather than examining how they may fit with broader patterns of political support. Failure to do so has impaired our ability to anticipate and prevent militia violence. So does dismissiveness of the militia movement or anything for that matter degrade its perceived importance in paying attention increases awareness? Can we focus too much on something bad, furthering its legitimacy and ignoring it, make it just go away? I think that's the, the tendency that a lot of people have. If we focus on it, then we're giving it legitimacy. And if we ignore it, it might just go away. Well, are, are either of those two things true? Yeah, I think it is a tough balance, but ignoring it certainly did not prevent January 6th, right? We we know that the militia movement had been very active in years and months preceding that date. Much of January 6th was talked about really openly on Parler and some other social media outlets at that time. And I still think it took January 6th and some of the preceding racial justice protest events too to make people as a whole understand that the militia movement is something that we can't ignore, that it's not going to go away just if we want it to. But instead, we have to take it seriously from an academic perspective and, of course, a law enforcement perspective and understand these groups, understand what motivates them, understand which groups are likely to be a problem and, and which ones maybe aren't. Why do you see the people who were at the events of January 6th as part of a movement, why do you see them as a collective rather than as a disparate mob? Yeah, and I think there's some of both happening here, right? We know that the vast majority of actors at January 6th weren't formal members of a militia, of a neo-Nazi group, of any kind of group that we've identified. And yet the political rhetoric, the precise concerns, the anti-government attitudes overlap very heavily across these groups. And if we had paid attention more robustly to what militias were concerned about, the kinds of actions they supported more in advance of that event, I think it would have caught many fewer people off guard. You mentioned how you, since 2008, have been arguing that militia members are barometers uh, for political currents that extend well beyond those groups' official membership ranks. But when we think of what their political currents are, we often just view them as extreme or fringe and therefore, again, dismissed, you know, willing to be dismissed. So if they are barometers for political currents, what can those barometers reveal? What can those uh, barometers forecast? Does the amount or intensity of extremist groups track with the amount or intensity of extremism in all politics from left to right? Yeah, it's not an exact one-to-one -one relationship, right? It's not an exact science. There's a lot of good, robust research that can go into this. A lot of it is about trying to, to use almost art as much as science, trying to figure out what kinds of threats and what kinds of correlations we have. Um, but for folks who study the things that I do, the Trump presidency wasn't nearly as big of a surprise. It wasn't a surprise to me at all, um, relative to what a lot of folks were saying, even up in the, the early hours of election night uh, when he, he won. Uh, we weren't necessarily surprised by something like January 6th either. And again, we it's not a comfortable space to try to predict exactly how 2024 may play out. 
but there are some likelihoods that we can observe given some of the more extreme elements who are more willing to talk about their political ideologies and their possible actions than some other people might be. You write how in 2016, months before the presidential election, you told your spring semester students in a class titled The Social Psychology of Prejudice that they should prepare themselves for the inevitability of Donald Trump becoming president that fall. You add Trump, of course, did win his election, galvanized militias and related actors and dramatically reshaped the Republican Party. Can Trump galvanize militias even without winning in November? Will the many groups around the country take action no matter the outcome of January 6th? Well, that's precisely the concern that as this election cycle gets closer to November, as Trump has more and more of a voice in mainstream media and beyond, that once more his rhetoric about immigration, about other perceived threats to the nation, uh, will embolden not just militias, but other people who believe similarly. And he certainly has that potential. I do want to add that not every militia member, not every group really likes Trump, either as a human or as a politician. And yet many of them still think that he is anti-establishment in a way that they are willing to support, a way that kind of challenges our traditional notions of what the federal government is supposed to be and look like. And so they're willing to to put any personal dislike of him to the side and support what they think will come out of that administration. But when we think of militia groups, I, at least I, not, not my personal opinion, but I think that the popular opinion is when we think of uh, extremist groups, we assume that they must be further and further and even further to the right than uh, Donald Trump is, than President Trump's uh, presidency, his administration was. Is that necessarily the case? It's not necessarily the case. There are certainly some groups that fit that description, but others are more kind of traditionally libertarian. They have certain conservative views. They have views that don't fit some of our stereotypes, such as being in favor of abortion access or being in favor of LGBTQ rights. And yet a lot of those folks are still willing to vote for someone like Trump because of what they believe about ideal government size, ideal government action in terms of spending, in terms of immigration, in terms of some of the other things that he's very good at stirring people up about. You explain how your own insights on militias came from direct interactions with militia members rather than assessments merely of their online activities or analysis of only the militia units that have been arrested and charged with various crimes. How would only studying their online activities, which is often the only way many may have contact with extremists, affect the way extremists are viewed? What happens when they are only understood through their online activities and what is missed when you do not have that kind of direct contact with somebody who may be a militia movement? member. Well, there are really good insights that we can get from those online spaces, but if we're only looking at folks online, we tend to get a younger snapshot than the movement is as a whole. We may be only seeing how people are trying to present themselves in a very public kind of sphere. We don't see how they are really with each other at their training exercises, how they're talking about their own actions um, when they're actually in the middle of doing them. And in my experience, 
how those folks talk to themselves, how they understand themselves is very different in those online spaces versus in the in-person spaces. And that matches what we we know about humans more broadly, right? We all tend to put forth a different image of ourselves on say Facebook or Twitter than we do in our homes or with our closest friends. And so we miss a lot of the nuance if we just focus on those online personas. Um, and that can go both ways, right? We might either over or underestimate particular risks based off of how a group is portraying themselves. And so those robust online analyses really need to be supplemented by more interviews, by more ethnographic type approaches to, to truly understand why people do what they do. And you point out that uh, Facebook was most groups platform of choice until they were forced off of that platform in 2020. Did using Facebook embolden extremists to go even further to the right? Does remote instead of direct contact lead to an acceleration of extremism? We think it does, yes, in no small part because that online environment can, can become very much an echo chamber where you're really only seeing ideas that you already agree with. Most of the time, things that challenge your perspective get filtered out either by the algorithm itself or by choices that you make in terms of the, the groups that you belong to or the conversations that you have. We know that in the lead up to their deplatforming, Facebook had also been pretty essential for some of these militia groups' efforts to make cross-state collaborations. And many of them just did this in terms of, oh, well, let's, let's coordinate in case some big event ever happens. And we never saw any uh, offline action that resulted from it. But we also know that some events did occur where people crossed state lines to participate, maybe not just in trainings, but in protest demonstrations as a result of those connections. We're pretty sure that Kyle Rittenhouse did what he did in Kenosha, Wisconsin, because of some of the Facebook conversations that he had been engaged in. So did deplatforming work in the way that Facebook wanted that uh, people who might have been supporting Facebook would have wanted it to work? Did it lead to uh, the decrease in numbers of militia members or because it was deplatformed, uh, did it lead to, you know, further radicalization? So the answer to that, I think, is yes, it was effective, but. It's complicated, as most social science questions are. Uh, we, I really think that the deplatforming that Facebook did was the the single most disruptive event to the U.S. domestic militia movement ever, even more so than the fallout of the Oklahoma City bombing that the movement experienced because of the way the deplatforming disrupted their ability to coordinate and communicate. Um, despite the fact that these groups really see themselves as being focused on preparedness in a lot of different ways, most of them didn't have a backup plan, and most of them have not recovered the kind of online community on alternate platforms they had prior to this deplatforming. At the same time, we know that deplatforming isn't going to scare off the most zealous of these members, right? The people who are most angry, the most potentially motivated to do something violent or otherwise problematic. And so they've gone to more quiet corners of the internet, or some of them have moved to exclusively having in-person engagements. And that makes them harder to study. So even though the momentum of the movement has certainly gone based off of that deplatforming relative to what it used to be, whether the actual threat has been mitigated remains to be seen. 
You write that when you were taking social science classes in un, as an undergraduate, you noticed that very little serious work existed on groups broadly labeled as right wing. You write how your background had in many ways been a liability on Vanderbilt University's wealthy campus where even a decade into a program designed to bring first generation and other underrepresented students to campus, the average family income of students who benefit from that program is 174% of the U.S. median household income. So in your opinion, why were extremist right-wing groups getting a free pass from academic research? Why were places like Vanderbilt that do cater to people who are relatively wealthy? Why were those uh, groups not, or why were those kinds of academic research centers not doing anything on right-wing groups? Well, to be fair, it is hard to do good work on these groups, especially work that involves actually interacting with them and not just studying their online presence or not just focusing on groups that have ended up in legal trouble and then focusing on the media stories around them. And I think that people can be rightly concerned about potential danger. But I also think part of it is that a lot of folks who study social movements, there's a kernel of truth to the idea that they have some degree of liberal bias and want to study groups that they ideologically agree with. I think that there are other kinds of disincentives beyond some of the safety ones for studying groups that we don't necessarily like or think of as progressive in that space. And so it became a, a big gap in the literature for both of those reasons. How do you think your background of being relatively not as well off compared to your Vanderbilt classmates, how do you think that affected your choice to study far-right extremists and what insight did or do you have about extremists that those who are relatively well off may not understand or recognize? The, the biggest thing for me is, you know, I grew up in rural Tennessee when I was a kid. Our power would go off almost every day. Um, we, I, I didn't usually go hungry, but I, I was not like my Vanderbilt peers who sometimes had horses uh, stabled just down the road from Boston or wherever so they could wow. continue their riding lessons wow. while they were in school. It was a very different experience, right? Um, and even though my my own political perspectives evolved as I grew up. I was in this very conservative community. I, I went to a Southern Baptist school where we used some homeschooling curriculums. Um, and so I, I kind of understand the debates. I understand the values from a more insider and human level, which I think helps me talk more to folks who are outside of that sort of stereotypical academic bubble. Uh, you know, when I went to grad school, a lot of my peers, their parents had gone to grad school or were lawyers or were all these very white collar professions and honestly had a hard time even talking to some working class folks. And not all militia members are working class, but there's this different sort of rural mentality that I talk about in my book that I think you have to relate to, to to ask the appropriate questions and to understand. And I think um, although we, you know, it's a, a tricky balance to really be objective and also humanize people, I think we still have to humanize militia members and people that we may fundamentally not like or not agree with before we can understand why they do what they do and then potentially have conversations with them or better education uh, to try to help change course here. When I was reading that part of your book, I was reminded that uh, we air at WNUR, one of our affiliates is, or one of the stations, our home station is WNUR, Northwestern University Radio. And I remember having a student producer on the show who was a Northwestern student. I have never been a Northwestern student. And they asked me one time, why do you have such a working class perspective? 
And I thought that was hilarious because I was like, well, maybe, maybe it's because I came from a working class family. So it was kind of, it was, it's just weird things that happened up there. So you point out that in third grade, your small parochial schools class was made to watch a film that argued the Gulf War was a clear sign of the end of times, using an interpretation of the biblical book of Revelations that insists that the prophesied return of Jesus Christ will occur through social strife and violent apocalypse. My class as eight and nine-year-olds was told that we needed to ensure our own salvation and prepare for the world to end. When the U.S. instead withdrew troops from the Gulf, effectively ending active hostilities, no explanations, corrections, or even follow-up predictions came from the school. Again, this was a private school, not a public school. Did you tell your parents, and were they fine with this kind of indoctrination? How much are right-wing extremists being indoctrinated into a life lived in fear by teachers grossly exaggerating threats to students at a very young and impressionable age? Yeah, my own experience was was uh, pretty stark on that dimension. I remember going home and telling my mom about it, and clearly she did not know ahead of time that that was on the agenda for the day in my classroom, but she didn't really say a whole lot to me. I think that that a lot of folks in that environment uh, were reluctant to challenge authority figures, and maybe she had some behind the conversation, behind the scenes conversations I was not aware of. Um, and I think there's a lot of trust in schools, in educators in that era, um, and that continues in a more traditional parochial environment, or that's been translated to a homeschooling environment these days. I think that it's, it's hard to quantify how much some of those lessons may really matter for some of the outcomes that we're seeing. And yet of the militia folks that I have met, many of them, I've talked to them about their educational trajectories and they've, they've learned the stories of our founding as being uh, all about bravery, all about going out and claiming the land and downplaying the Native American genocide that happened, downplaying the history of slavery that was very much part of, of founding this country and making us who we are today. And I think that incomplete and or just plain bad history lessons do play a big role in a lot of these members' interpretations of our history and also what it means to be a good American today. So did the increase in homeschooling uh, due to COVID in 2020 and 2021 and any lingering increase in homeschooling that may continue since 2022, uh, do you think that necessarily means that there is going to be an increase in the number of people who will be interested in joining groups like militia groups and extremist organizations because of that homeschooling? Does homeschooling necessarily mean a rise in right wing extremism? different kinds of homeschoolers and I don't want to talk about them completely across the board. There are some people who do a really good job and some people who uh, are really invested in a more anti-government and a more conspiratorial framework that we certainly have concerns would lead to outcomes for critical thinking that aren't ideal for future society. At the same time, it could be the case that in certain circumstances, the, the lessons are so stark and so extreme that kids start questioning for themselves and looking for alternate and maybe more robust answers. When you were uh, describing this film that you're watching and this kind of installation, you know, instilling of fear in children, 
all I could think of was how there are so many uh, parents, or at least many anti-CRT people, even though they're not really describing critical race theory correctly. Mm -hmm. But still, uh, there are a lot of people who are upset about their kids learning history at school that makes them feel ashamed of being white. Why, why would you want people to live in fear of exaggerated or completely made up threats to their and their family's safety and security? And why is frightening children okay, but having them feel shame about their history is not? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, that part of the idea underlying that is that it should be parents who get to decide what their kids know. Um, and, you know, some people think that there's a lot of implicit guilt about things that happen in our history and therefore discomfort in talking about it. The reality, regardless of whatever those feelings are truly about underneath, is that if we we don't have accurate portrayals of our history, then we can't adequately learn from it. Uh, the goal isn't about blaming people who've done nothing wrong or saying that all white people are evil or have done terrible things, but rather understanding how our history has led to present circumstances where some people have objective advantages over others. And if we don't recognize that, it leads to a lot of blaming of groups who don't have the same opportunities. People make negative and stereotypical assumptions about them. We can't think about how to best allocate resources to help people if that's our goal. And so we need to kind of rethink the reasons behind why we want to have these conversations, I think. Do you think that's the point of groups like Moms for Liberty? Do you think that's the point of Florida's education uh, process that they're going through right now is the whole point to not have that historical context so you can use blame instead of analysis? I think that is the motive for some people. I think some people genuinely may not understand the civics and are worried about the impact on their kids. And that's that's kind of the problem with groups like this. You can have some nefarious actors, people who really genuinely say don't want to make certain kinds of social progress. And then they can make their message attractive to people who have very different motives and get a lot of momentum by well-intentioned people who may not really understand what's what's truly going on under the surface. And you mentioned how when you were 14, the pastor of at your parents' church held a sermon about the proper place of women, insisting it was acceptable for women to go to college and to work, uh, but that they should stop and be full-time mothers once married. This lecture was directed at a congregation where the pastor's own wife fit that description, but other families were financially unable to make that transition, even if they had wanted to do so. Yet no one in the congregation seemed to take issue with the sermon of their or their inability to follow this divine command. So does this kind of rural Christianity, does it instill a sense of privilege, whether you can actually afford or experience that privilege or not? I think that it, it does set up some certain kinds of expectations. And we know that that intersects in interesting ways with the American dream, where if people um, are seen as not quite making it to the top of the ladder that can result in a lot of blame or assumptions about people not doing what they're supposed to do as good Americans to get there. And unfortunately, we've seen that core message warped in white Christian nationalism, which is a perversion of Christianity and everything it entails, but instead is about sort of political messaging and almost weaponizing some of the the core tenets of Christianity in weird ways uh, to try to maintain political power that, that benefits white folks, statistically speaking. 
We are speaking with sociologist Amy Cooter. She has returned to This Is Hell to talk about her new book, Nostalgia, Nationalism, and the U.S. Militia Movement. Amy, many would argue they have nothing in common at all with right-wing extremists, vehemently arguing they have nothing in common whatsoever. What happens to an understanding of right-wing extremism when one believes they have absolutely nothing in common with extremists, and therefore what? What happens when that happens? I think it's hard to move forward when people have that attitude, you know, and it's, it's not, again, it's a really hard balance to objectively study these folks and also humanize them appropriately. But I think until we can do that and start to move forward politically or otherwise, I think one thing that gets lost in a lot of these conversations is that fundamentally people who are incredibly conservative, militia members, even some of the more extreme factions, what they care about is this country. And a lot of them want to shape it to exactly their vision, which of course is not okay. But very often there is room to, to think about points of commonality and pull some people back from the brink by using that point of commonality. When it comes to any commonality is a commonality of all these extremist groups, a commonality, a lowest common denominator that they all embrace. Is that that they want to impose some sort of Christian nationalist theocracy, or is that an inaccurate characterization of what the United, what they want the United States to be? Well, these groups aren't necessarily religious. We're thinking about it in terms of theocracy. What what I think they all have in common is what they want is some idealized past version of America. And what differs across those groups is exactly what that looks like for them. So for neo-Nazi groups, they explicitly want a version where white people have power and maybe where there are only white people in this country. For militia groups, they don't necessarily have those same race-based or religious-based ideas. Instead, they're kind of idealizing the notion of small government, of kind of rosy economics, and not necessarily thinking about the complexities that get wrapped up in that. So many of them will kind of verbalize either overtly or otherwise thinking about going back to the 1950s when it was simple and, and only one person in a household had to work and you could afford a house and you could afford an education. But they don't always think about how the 50s weren't so great if you weren't a white man. And if you bring that up and bring up the other implications of that, they they kind of quickly kind of I wouldn't say dance around it exactly, but think up justifications and say, well, except for that, or, well, 1950s, except we won't be more equitable without thinking about how that that's actually pushing to where we, we truly are today and some of the things that we're trying to fight against now. Um, it gets complicated quickly, especially because that ideal version of America that many of them reference have some implicit Christian stories wedded into the myth of our founding. And you point out how nostalgia is a wishful re-embrace for a past that never was. And when wedded to archetypes of strong and brave white men who are at the center of our mythologized national origin story, that explains much of the ideological underpinnings of the militia practices. But it is a myth that they believe in. Our schools, our political leaders, our parents, our media, 
They all repeat that myth, too, over and over and over again. It's as if it's as harmless as teaching your kids about Santa Claus and repeatedly reinforcing that myth. However, at least children are expected to grow out of that childish belief at some point. We do not have a similar expectation when it comes to the myths that are at the center, at the heart of right-wing extremism. Why do right-wing extremist adults still believe in myths about America that are taught to us as children? I think that a lot of adults, regardless of their political persuasion, honestly believe that. I think sometimes people challenge those stories over the course of their education or over the course of their life experience. But when we're talking about folks who are very similar demographically, mostly men, mostly white, mostly lower middle class, live and work in places where those perspectives just don't kind of get naturally challenged over the course of their lives or or on the day-to-day job, right? Um, they're, they're often in a place where they have to be incentivized to seek out alternative stories, given that we don't really have those foundational lessons across the board quite yet. And you point out that settler masculinity and a rural mentality provide a framework that avoids reductive explanations that attribute all militia action merely to overt racism and helps better predict militia activity and threats in the future. Is that settler masculinity, is that also imbued with a myth, a story, a lie? Is settler masculinity based on things like movings about the nation's origins, including Westerns. Do extremists view Westerns like they see that like they're watching a documentary? I don't think that they they quite put it in that literal term, but yeah, I think that that generally we have things in our culture, whether it's films or books or uh, even many of the things that, that get shown on the military or history channels can contribute to bolstering that image. And of course, a lot of it is self-selection, right? Folks who already kind of believe these things then maybe choose certain biographies to read or certain films to watch that then reinforce that message. Uh, but Krista Dumetz's book, Jesus and John Wayne, does a good job of talking about how some of that imagery gets reinforced over time as well. How did I not have that book on our list? Jesus and John Wayne. I'm going to. It's have amazing. To... You have to get it today. All right, I will do that. <laughs> Jesus and John Wayne. It's a great title. So yeah. uh, you uh, mentioned an experience. Or you, you had at a Michigan rally where you saw a female police officer who was talking to some militia members, and uh, she mentioned that they were the good guys. Asked what they were doing there. One member said he told her, "We're here to protect the free speech." Of of both sides at a rally where a far-right speaker was speaking who was Islamophobic in an area that has a lot of Muslim population. She reportedly uh, flipped up her sunglasses, gave her positive endorsement, and offered suggestions of behaviors in the crowd they could watch for that, you know, for what might be signal impending violence. Individuals praying alone or wearing heavy clothing that was incongruent with the warm weather, as both could signal someone intending to use an explosive device this encounter had clear parallels to the interaction that would capture national media attention eight years later between teenager Kyle Rittenhouse and police in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Police aligning themselves with armed far-right extremists. Is the militia movement pushing even police officers further to the right? And is it even possible to purge militia members from their ranks? You know, it's really tricky. I feel like that's my answer to all your questions. <laughs> that's reality here. Um, even before militias were on more folks' radar, in a lot of places, 
There were heavy connections between militias and police officers. It's often the case, especially in more rural environments, that police know militias are active, know some of their members, maybe are even related to them, and haven't traditionally seen that seen them as a particular threat. Sometimes that's true, but sometimes it means that those officers kind of take for granted indicators of possible radicalization or indicators that one particular group might actually be a problem. And I think we've had some increased attention to that very question since Kenosha, since January 6th, and some of our continuing investigations there. Um, but it's really hard, especially in an era where groups like militias are sometimes seen as pro-police and anti-Antifa or anti-Black Lives Matter, which supposedly are also anti-cop. And it becomes a big, complicated picture trying to make sure certain law enforcement members really understand where potential threats can come from. Something I skipped over earlier that I want to get back to, how do we mistakenly understand extremist militia groups when we perceive all of their guiding principles to be racism? Yeah, um, I think that that's an important misunderstanding because I think that it has meant that we have grouped militia members in with overt neo-Nazis and ignored, historically speaking, some of their more anti-government attitudes that have led to recent events. I think that if we sort of say, oh, well, they're only motivated by racism, we miss a lot of what they're actually motivated about. We miss a lot of their political and other intentions. And we also risk downplaying the very specific harm that overtly racist groups continue to do, not just in our political system, but direct violence on communities of color. So you write that when units, rather than just individual members of militia units, participate in exclusionary behavior, it means most of its members are likely strongly invested in stereotypes about various outgroups. Units like this are breeding grounds for these stereotypes and potentially for hate speech or violent action against these groups. If units in part form around notions of whiteness being somehow vulnerable to threat, they may be, may be particularly susceptible to blending with or at least being influenced by overtly white supremacist organizations. Is belief in stereotypes, uh, faith in oversimplified generalizations at the heart of what the militia movement stands for and believes in? Is there a desire among militia movements for a simple understanding of the world, world, any understanding of the world. Is that what they're grasping at for more than anything, that the world is a very complicated place and they want to have a, be a simple understanding of the world around them, which leads to stereotypes? Well, you know, we're all prone to stereotypes, regardless of what our political persuasion is. It's just kind of baked in, we think, to how our brains are programmed to kind of make efficient decisions, especially during times of stress. But there are some indications that people who are on the more extreme end of the spectrum might have what's called a lower tolerance for ambiguity, where that, that complexity, the not always having a concrete answer might be more upsetting to them than it is to other people. Um, I'll say that the vast majority of militia members I have personally encountered really try not to be exclusionary, really think of themselves as not exclusionary on other dimensions, 
And so when we see groups that really lean into that, that actually embrace that as part of their identity, that, that's certainly a big red flag. A lot of the folks that I encountered who fit that description, especially on the basis of race or religion, had actually been rejected by other militia groups that didn't want to endorse that thinking or the possible behavior that could follow from it. So does that suggest that there's some sort of infighting or competition between uh, militia groups? Well, there's lots of infighting in groups on the right generally. Frankly, if there weren't, they would be a lot more successful than they are. So we're glad that there is. Um, but that happens in a variety of different ways. And one of the ways that it happens is that that some of these groups really see themselves as having a more defensive posture. They're there just in case the government does something wrong. Most of their activity looks a lot like going out and camping in the woods, doing some target shooting, and then going back home to your regular job. And Some of the groups, though, are more concerning, where we see them have much more anger, much more conspiracism, much more active desire to do something harmful. And unfortunately, we've seen a shift towards that kind of group in recent years as a result of a lot of the political rhetoric that's floated around. As you point out, conspiracism, conspiracy theories also plays a role in militia groups. Many people, especially mainstream pundits, see the current state of conspiracism as if there's been nothing like it before in American history. This is despite something that recently came up in our This Week in Rotten History segment. In 1837, after the Electoral College could not select a vice president for President Van Buren, the U.S. Senate chose Senator Richard Johnson of Kentucky, a Democrat. Uh, Senator Johnson was a close friend of John Cleves Sims, a lecturer who traveled the country promoting his theory that the earth was hollow and that its interior could be accessed through large open at the North and South Poles. A year before becoming vice president, Johnson had actually introduced a Senate bill to provide federal funding for a large-scale expedition to the center of the earth. Of course, the measure was had never got adapt, adopted, but it still happened. So how new and unprecedented is conspiracism and conspiracy theories in U.S. politics, let alone within extremist uh, militia groups, because the way the media, everybody in the media is saying this is what we are experiencing now with conspiracy theories is unprecedented. I think conspiracism and conspiracy theories have had a very long history in the U.S. and beyond. I think what makes it a little different now is the Internet, the ability for people to to see different theories, to quote unquote, research them, uh, to hear those echo chambers and maybe get pulled into them more. I'm not so sure that that what we're seeing is really something brand new versus it being louder and potentially, at least in some quarters, more persuasive. I think that what we, we need to do is look to some of those historical lessons and how we kind of came out of some of those more stark eras and try to take some lessons toward that internet framework to help us understand a little bit better how to to combat some of that thinking. You write that most militias you've observed prioritize preparedness within their own communities, but still believe it is crucial to be aware of other nearby militias so that they can coordinate in case of disaster. Did they, anybody ever explain to you what that disaster might entail? For instance, where my family vacations in Michigan every summer is in a very small rural county that is very pro-Trump. And in the summer of 2020, 
They believed that an Antifa army was on their way to invade the area. At night, they rallied at a discount store parking lot, spread wild rumors, reporting that, in fact, Antifa was on its way or already there, and they drove around the area for several hours late at night looking for invaders. Is this the kind of disaster that militias want to coordinate against? It can look like that. I don't think in recent years it's looked increasingly like that. Um, but they also have in mind other things, like natural disasters or big accidents. Like when I was still living in Michigan, for example, there was a pretty big tornado that went through Dexter, and three or four different units from different counties all came together to help with cleanup efforts and distributed water and some other supplies in the early hours after that hit. So you also point out that some researchers suggest that the best approach to handling U.S. domestic militias is to legally ban them. This is a tricky thing for a variety of reasons. You point out Georgetown Law created a website that lists statutes from all 50 states that they say already make private militias illegal. However, many of these statutes are less clear-cut in their application that then may seem to be true at first glance. For instance, many state statutes include language about prohibiting activity meant to culminate in civil disorder. Constitutionalist militias insist they have no such mo- uh, motives. And even some millenarian, uh, m- sorry, millenarian uh, units with less of a militant accelerationist bent insist that they are restoring order through their actions, thus potentially rationalizing even violent plots as being in the greater good. Could such criminalization of militia groups either force them into hiding, making them more secretive and potentially dangerous, and could the same laws then be used against more legitimate expressions of political organizing that are critical of the government? You know, that's the concern, right? It's it's similar to the argument about deplatforming. It may have some positive effects and some negative effects if we were to have more criminal consequences for militia activity. I, I really don't think there's much political will to have that kind of criminal consequence um, in no small part because we have such a long history in this country of using laws and practices that are maybe intended to target say terrorists, but are instead in practice used against black folks who are advocating for civil rights. And I think there's a lot of concerns about how such laws would be written um, to chill not just militias, but other kinds of groups and maybe even free speech. And I think it's given our complicated framework with both the state and federal level. I think it's a really tricky thing to, to try to pull off, even if there is the political will. That's exactly what I fear, because you mentioned in-person communication by a law enforcement officer uh, can have an intense impact on somebody who is a militia member who might be posting things online that seem they could be turning into violent threats or violent actions. So, uh, for instance, we often post interviews we have done with guests who are critical of law enforcement. And if one dropped by the studio and started asking questions about those guests and our conversations with them, even speaking with you about how uh, law enforcement officers have been friendly to people like Kyle Rittenhouse in the past, that would either intimidate me into silence or further radicalize me in my ideas about law enforcement. So what kind of online speech, in your opinion, should attract law enforcement officer in-person communication that wouldn't be a stifling of free speech and legitimate political concerns? Well, I think even before we get to that stage, when possible, law enforcement should have good awareness of what potential groups and actors are in their communities. 
and try to have this type of baseline conversation with them, not an investigation, but just sort of open that door for conversation. Among, and I know that sounds weird at first, but among the militia groups that I studied, the vast majority of them see themselves as working alongside local law enforcement to prevent problems in their communities and are usually willing to sit down and have a good faith conversation about who they are and what they're doing. If they're not willing to have that, well, that can be an indication of, of something potentially problematic going on behind the scenes. So yeah. as a first step, kind of having that, that baseline, that open door, at least as a possibility. Secondarily, when we're thinking about groups that are likely to pose a real threat, there are a few different indicators we can watch for. And I think one of them is if they start talking about specific plots or targeting specific people or buildings, um, that's a huge red flag and something that, that should garner law enforcement attention pretty quickly. You mentioned a militia researcher who didn't have connections with law enforcement and they gave you some information you pass that on to law enforcement officers and uh you know as you have noted and yesterday's guest did as well often members of law enforcement either have sympathies with militia or are members themselves how afraid should a researcher be of contacting police because that researcher may become a target of either militia or police harassment if not violence it's a non-zero concern. I think that that most researchers who've been around for a while have some law enforcement connections that they know are pretty reliable, um, and there are ways that those messages can be communicated to avoid being targeted for the most part by the, the actual extremist actors. Um, I think for new researchers, it's helpful to try to get connected to folks who've been doing this for a while just because there are some uncertainties about who you can trust and who might understand the landscape, even if, if they're not aligned with them. You mentioned how you spoke to an agent from a state office of the Department of Homeland Security in the days before the 2020 president, presidential election. He had emailed saying that he wanted to call and chat about my knowledge of any militia activity in his area. But when we talked over the phone, his first questions to me were about the black NFAC militia, which had recently received media attention for organizing well outside of its, his jurisdiction. The NFAC seemed to have coalesced for very different reasons than most white militias, but were fallaciously seen as substantially more disruptive and threatening due to their blackness. What are those different reasons and do those reasons for coalescing in groups like black NFAC make them less threatening and disruptive than white militias? Well, I want to caveat and say I think we need to do a lot more good research on black militias and we, we need to encourage the field to support um, scholars who aren't just white to be able to do an excellent job with this work. But based off what we know right now, we think that groups like that are much more likely to organize specifically in response to police violence against their communities or to racist violence against their communities. That's a very different reason for saying, hey, maybe I need to arm myself or hey, maybe I need to go protest versus, oh my gosh, I'm losing my social power. Oh my gosh, I think the election's been stolen and I have to do something about it. And so what the specific triggers are, what the specific kind of consequences of that line of thinking are very different across these groups. 
You mentioned that uh, when it comes to this masculinity, you write that you go to you went to one militia meeting and you write after a training in late summer near the uh, close of my field work, one unit's leader instructed members to rest and hydrate, even if they felt okay, saying he cared about each of them and wanted them to take care of themselves. This led to a discussion about the limits of masculine affection in American masculinity. One man elaborated by recounting how when he was stationed in South Korea, it was common for men to publicly hold hands as a sign of platonic affection. He said that while the practice felt very odd at first, he started to participate and eventually found it quite enjoyable. Uh, You write how you watch the other members' faces as they intently listened to his story, and by the end, almost all were nodding their heads in agreement at the notion that men should have more opportunities to care for others without feeling belittled. Do you think that was an isolated situation or does it reflect a greater willingness for those on the far right to question their vision of hypermasculinity? And is that why the right's view of masculinity is so fragile and so easily offended? Because even those on the right are questioning its place in today's world. Yeah, I think it's hard to get a lot of men, regardless of per- political persuasion, to think about masculinity and how it could look a different way than perhaps it does right now. Uh, But we've seen some shifts in what it means to be a man, culturally speaking, in America that we know have been very impactful, not just for groups like militias, but we've seen a rise in incels and other misogynist motivated groups and violence in a way that means that we're going to have to address this question, I think, in a more robust and profound way in coming years to avoid producing more extremism of this type. You also mentioned uh, the idea that we should look at history in a different way and not in a nostalgic way. Uh, Is the point uh, to shift from an embrace of nostalgia to one of considering, analyzing, and researching the historical context of our past, and not only the context of the past, that reflects poorly on the history of the United States? How should we look at history differently than nostalgia and still give people a feeling, the good feeling that they have? When, that they get from nostalgia. Yeah, I don't think we could, we should throw nostalgia off completely, right? There's some good research that, that shows that nostalgia feels good, that it does have some potentially positive psychological and social consequences, but it's almost like nostalgia plus or nostalgia with an asterisk. It's, it's the case that we need to have those warm, fuzzy feelings, but also maybe fact check ourselves a little bit better as a collective society. And, and remember um, that those warm, fuzzy images maybe weren't so warm and fuzzy for everybody or were maybe based off of a bit of a fiction instead of what experiences were truly like for people at that time. And I think the more we're honest with ourselves, the more we kind of integrate that with our feelings about the past, the better off we'll be. We are speaking with sociologist Amy Cooter. She has returned to This Is Hell to talk about her new book, Nostalgia, Nationalism, and the U.S. Militia Movement. You can find out more about Amy at her website, amycooter.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Amy Cooter. One last question for you, Amy, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. Are militias trying to protect Americans from democracy, or do they argue that what we have is no longer a democracy? And if they do, do they want a democracy in the United States? How, how do they view democracy as an impediment to what they want to achieve, to their mission, to their goals? Or do they view it as being right now undermined by big corporations or whatever uh, 
problematic issues that a U.S. democracy has today. Are they trying to save democracy or are they trying to destroy democracy? With, again, the caveat that there's a lot of variation across these groups, I think the most extreme elements, especially those that have what we call an accelerationist bent, um, want democracy for some, and specifically they want democracy for white men and other people who are okay with white men having traditional legal and political and economic authority, excluding other folks from any kind of true democracy. So do you think that reflects what the founding fathers wanted? I mean, after all, it's the Constitution is not necessarily the most, uh, you know, open minded document. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's part of why, again, some of these more extreme elements can kind of get away with referencing the Constitution and the founders as such a, an ideal framework to, to try to lobby towards uh, because it fits with that narrative as well as our glossier, more equitable narratives that we often impose on them. So how much do you think, uh, how much would an actual understanding of the Constitution, allowing criticism of the Constitution, how far would that go to undermining the militia movement? Well, this would help as well as more honest reflections on the founding fathers themselves, talking about how some of them were slaveholders, talking about how some of them weren't necessarily Christian and how they were fallible humans, and also just young men who may not have represented everybody's interest even at the time, let alone now in, the, in 2024. Amy, I cannot thank you enough for being back on the show. We really appreciate it. And whenever you have a new piece out or if you have a new book out, please get in contact up with us. We would love to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for being on today. Thanks again for having me. It's always fun. All right. Take care, Amy. All right, bye. Live from the United States, where our past has been weaponized in order to destroy whatever freedom and equality we do have. This is Hell If Our Talk with Amy gave you a better understanding of what militias are and what they are not, and what we can do to make it so these hate filled groups don't become violent, even deadly. Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and just clicking on support. We started last week's Patreon podcast with the person who counterpunches Nick Pemberton said is the greatest current public intellectual. And no, it was not an interview with multiple-time past guest Noam Chomsky. The person Nick erroneously thinks is the greatest public intellectual is some doofus by the name of Chuck Mertz. And that says a lot more about Nick's judgment than it does about me. Nick cruelly posted a real mean article on Noam Chomsky's 90th birthday back in or on December 7th, 2018 a day that will live in infamy, with the headline, The Case for Chuck Mertz Not Noam Chomsky as America's Leading Intellectual. Shortly after on Patreon, I took a deep dive into the article and came to the conclusion that Nick must have been sarcastic because I've read his other writing and there's no way someone that articulate thinks I'm a more important public intellectual than Noam. What I did not know at the time is Nick would post yet another similar article seven months later on July 19th, 2019, the first time we aired a live show from our new studio here above Carrie's Lounge. That article was headlined, This is Heaven, A Journey 
to the pearly gates with Chuck Mertz, an article I did not know existed until just a few weeks ago. Now, I'll be completely honest, I've not yet read Nick's follow-up articles, so while I figure it's just more sarcasm, I'm not certain. So, after analyzing Nick's follow-up and what he thinks makes me so great, we'll be playing an interview that recently came up in a conversation on the show during uh, Dr. Sebastian Vupper's Past Inside the Present. So, uh, we did an article, uh, or we did an interview, sorry, uh, with Uri Evneri back in 2004 and 2006, I believe. Uri is a former soldier, uh, Knesset member, former Knesset member, leading Israeli peace activist. He fought in the 1948 Arab-Israeli war with the paramilitary group Irgun, alongside former Israeli general and Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. Yuri boldly states in our conversation that the group he participated in, again, Irgun, was in fact a terrorist group. Uri served twice in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, from 65 to 73 and 77 to 81. He also formed Israel's peace movement, Gush Shalom. He passed away a few months before Nick claimed I was the most important public intellectual, so he never realized what an honor it was for him to be interviewed by me. So we're playing the first interview we do with Yuri back on March 6th, 2004. And if our Patreon patrons like it, we'll play the second interview with Yuri from 2006, the following week. But the only way you can hear me talk about how great Nick, Pember- Nick Pemberton thinks I am, and, well, why he's so, so friggin' wrong, and a conversation with an admitted terrorist who fought for and helped win Israel's independence is by subscribing at our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash thisishell. By doing so, you also get a discount code word for all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Chris, what is this week's question from hell? And give us the rest of this week's uh, answers from our listening audience. This week's question from hell is, what are you bringing to the This Is Hell bake sale? It's going to be great. And the fine folks in Discord wrote, Dr. Cantankerous wrote, The Rich. (laughs) Okay. And Kim G and Discord wrote, Devil's Food Cake. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, Kim always comes up with good ones. And we have, uh, let's see here, we have one extra one on our Facebook page. Okay. And that's from Evan, who wrote, Whatever I can steal from work. <laughs> I like that one. That's pretty good. I hope that he doesn't work at like a hardware store or something, because then you're just taking somebody else's lunch. I know. When Anything I else? In corporate America, I really loved the theft I did there. It was fantastic. Oh, really? Uh, refrigerator theft? Uh, theft? Uh, let's just say if I'm, uh, I'm helping organize a protest, stuff like that, I would actually, instead of using my uh, print machine, uh, let's say my <laughs> printer, I would use the company's printer and print like 500 pages of flyers and stuff. So yeah, it was wonderful. A uh, past producer on our show was doing an internship at WBEZ and he got fired for using their printer for stuff for This Is Hell. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Anything Uh, else? Yeah, so uh, from Welcome to the Hellhole, we got three extra ones here. Jack Block wrote, a copy of the Subito album, Bake Sale and some vegan gluten-free quote-unquote weed brownies. (laughs) So that's what he's bringing to our bake sale. Okay. And then Mike wrote, Lactose intolerance, gluten sensitivity, and a sense of adventure. <laughs> That's a good one. I really like that. Anything and, else? And Kwafka Smith wrote, a bottle of a, a bottle of Malort to help Chuck wash down all the pot brownies. Yeah, it's disgusting. Breakfast of champions. 
Yeah, it's, it's really the breakfast of champions. All right, so which one, anything that really stick out to you? I, I really liked Mike saying that he would bring to the bake sale lactose intolerance, gluten sensitivity, and a sense of adventure. I, I, that's my favorite, but do you have any that really stick out? Ooh, um, let's see here. I could relate to theft from work. Yeah, that's uh, a good one too. Lactose intolerance is how super high up there. Uh, communist literature is a good one. <laughs> that is a good one. Who said that again? That was a Surav. And the Malort to help you wash down the uh, pot brownies, Chuck. That's that's, that's a great one too. Th- that is I'm pretty le- good. I'm leaning towards lactose intolerance. So. Yeah, yeah. Let's go with that. God, I really did like communist literature and whatever I can steal from work. Those are some really great answers this week. Thanks to everybody. Mike, you are the winner of this week's question from Hell. Mike S., all you have to do is just send us an email. Tell us your mailing address and which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want, and we will get that stuff in uh, mail to you post-haste. Oh, just real quick, uh, I did get one more via email the last time I checked, and it was from John F., and he said what he is bringing to the uh, This Is Hell bake sale is as chairman of the American Petroleum Institute, I am pleased to be bringing Baked Alaska. (laughs) So that's a pretty good one, too. My answer to this week's question from hell, uh, from Hugh, who posted his suggestion in our Discord community, and we want you to post your suggestions in our Discord community or anywhere on social media. Just say, here's my suggestion for next week's question from hell. So again, the question from hell was, what are you bringing to the This Is Hell Bake Sale? I love Polish pastries whether it's Punchki, Kolachki, or Kruszczyki. And as Chris speaks Polish, I want to apologize for my butchering of each of those words. So I hope someone brings my favorite Polish pastries. And if you do, I promise to bring weed to make each even more enjoyable, which seems impossible. Chris, who are our confirmed guests for next week's show? Palestinian writer, journalist, and political researcher Hamza Ali Shah will join us to talk about his Jacobin article, Western Government Share Responsibility for Israel's Crimes, as well as his writing at Declassified UK, including Beheaded Babies, How UK Media Reported Israel's Fake News as Fact. And we better get some hate mail for that interview, damn it. All right, who's our next guest next week? Author, screenwriter, filmmaker Andrew Cockburn returns to This Is Hell as he has a new article in the March issue of Harper's entitled The Pentagon Silicon Valley Problem, How Big Tech is Losing the Wars of the Future. And who's our third guest, and I know they're our final guest next week, is receiving hate mail as we speak for an (laughs) article that he posted at the American Prospect. So who's our final guest next week? Award-winning historian Rick Perlstein also returns to This Is Hell to discuss his latest American Prospect article that has led to a lot of hate mail, (laughs) as you said. The neglected history of the state of Israel, the revisionist faction of Zionism that ended up triumphing, adhered to literal fascist doctrines and traditions. Thanks to Chris Colfan for producing I Am Your Bitter, Blind, Broke, Gaptooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host Chuck Mertz. This is how office hours happen every Wednesday at the bar downstairs from us. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. It's our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. That's really a drink and think. This is how office hours. Again, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. Every Wednesday starts around 6 p.m. Hope to see you there. No matter what the weather is, we'll be there. See? We told you so. This is hell.
my demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.